Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Radio Motherboard is brought to you by Casper. You can go to casper.com and use code VICE, that's V-I-C-E, for $50 off any mattress. Today we're talking about brains. This is Radio Motherboard, and this is Jason Kebler. Adrian, why are we talking about brains? We're talking about brains because I'm worried about what all this technology is doing to my brain. What do you think it's doing? All what technology? No what are you even talking about? I'm talking about the fact that I spend over eight hours a day staring at my computer and then more hours staring at my phone. And I've stopped remembering things because I can just look them up on the internet. And those are just the obvious ways that the internet is affecting my brain. And it's not just the internet. It's all this stuff. It is. And yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, we're going to have an interview with Natalie Nahai. She is called the web psychologist. And she she's not a neurologist, but she's certainly um, studied how technology is affecting our brains and our behavior and what does it mean when you spend the entire your entire life on social media and jacked into two different worlds I guess so uh, we're calling this week jacked in at motherboard and we have all sorts of great brain stories we have uh, one by Kaylee Rogers that will go the same day this podcast comes out so they will be online simultaneously and you can read it. And we have Kaylee here today. Hello. Kaylee, what are you writing about? I'm writing about not technology, but the technology that we can use to remove parts of our brain and what happens when we do that. And there's some amazing people living and walking around and you would never guess that inside their skull, their brain looks very different than yours because they've had an entire hemisphere removed or they've had part of their frontal lobe removed or various other bits and pieces and what that means. This story is already giving me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> yeah, so explain more about this. There's people out there who don't have their entire brains. Yeah, there's a few different reasons why someone might have parts of their brain removed. It's usually because of some kind of disease or some kind of impact, some kind of damage that's been done to the brain. One of the really common ones is a hemispherectomy. That's where you take out half of the brain. Um, and it's due to young children who have different kinds of, of neurological issues that cause severe seizures and they get worse and worse. And if nothing gets done, then the, the child won't be able to develop at all because their brain is just constantly either in a seizure or recovering from a seizure. 
So what they can do is take out one hemisphere where the seizures are sort of coming from, and then the other hemisphere makes up for everything that the hemisphere that's been removed used to do. So kids will relearn language, they'll relearn how to speak and how to write and how to walk and all these incredible things that both sides of their brain used to do and now just one side does. What Does that make your head like physically imbalanced? Like because you've got a, a heavy brain on one side and nothing on the other. Do they put something else in? As they just filler? fill it with styrofoam. They don't put anything else in. I, I spoke to a young woman yesterday who had a hemispherectomy as a, as a kid and she was telling me this story about being a child a few years later. She was playing on the playground and fell and hit her head and had to go to the emergency room. And somehow, I guess because she came from horrified. the school, yeah, they were really disturbed <laughs> and did not understand what was going on in the x-ray. And she yeah. was just a kid, so she couldn't really explain it. And she just wanted to go home because she hit her head. But uh, she said, yeah, she said nowadays because her scarring is all covered by her hair. Like, you, you know, you would never know just by looking at her. So she literally has half of a brain. Her head's not heavier on one side. (sighs) To be honest, I didn't ask her if her head was heavier on one side or the other. I guess you just get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about our brain is that it's just kind of floating in fluid, correct? So maybe it just kind of floats and bounces around the skull. Sound sounds plausible to me. Yeah, this is highly scientific. <laughs> that that is super fascinating, and I can't wait to read it. Uh, Adrian, what are your favorite stories from this week? We have had a bunch of cool stories this week. We let's see. One I really liked was about the next level for virtual reality that gets into manipulating the brain and taking biofeedback signals from your body and from your brain, like checking out your brain waves, checking out your heart rate in order to make the experience more immersive. Like one idea is that you could have, you could be in a game where you're faced up with a, a T-Rex and the dinosaur like responds to your fear, like it can sense your fear. So you have to control your own heart rate and calm yourself down, you know, or it'll realize you're there and eat you, that kind of thing. Um, We've also done, we did a story about what's going on in the brain during um, when bad memories are triggered. Like when you see those warnings at the top of articles that say, you know, warning a story is about something that may cause some people distress. Um, Those are triggering memories that can bring up bad experiences and trauma. But also if people feel like they can't relate to that, when I was reading the story, all I could think of was how so many people will remember and relive an embarrassing memory just randomly walking down the street and they'll remember sometimes they embarrass themselves and that comes back and like floods their whole body. It's the same thing. This That, that happens to me all the time. Um, we also had a cool story about kind of the history of optogenetics, which is um, the use of it's like shining light on your brain or on muscle tissue in order to cause it to do something. So they've got rats where they actually drill a hole through the rat's skull and they put a fiber optic cable through there and shine blue light on certain regions of the brain to make the rat like have an erection or feel compelled to eat cheese. Yeah, optogenetics is one of my favorite emerging technologies. It 
yeah, as Adrian said, can be used to influence all sorts of behaviors and basically stimulate parts of the brain. And it's being used to determine how things like ketamine work, how, yeah, how erections work. It's, it's highly useful. It has a crazy range of applications. Like it could be used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, obesity, depression, depression. Yeah. Um, like physical and mental problems could potentially be, um, you know, it can be used to treat, uh, like degenerative muscular conditions, like conditions where you, your muscle is actually fine, but your brain can no longer communicate with it. Um, they could potentially inject some kind of light sensitive protein into your DNA and then shine the light on it and then figure out how to, how you could control that to make your dead arm do things. Right. The bummer with optogenetics is it's not anywhere near ready for use in humans um, because often it requires having half of your skull open. Uh, but yeah, they've done really amazing things with mice and it's a fairly new uh, process, isn't it? I think it's only like five or so years old, but um, I could be wrong. It's, it's pretty new that it, so it recently started accelerating a lot in the past couple of years and nobody really had a good answer for why um one researcher said it was because there's been a lot of collaboration in the community and there was some big stock of research that was published and made open so maybe that's why um it has been proposed i think the first person who talked about it was sir francis crick so that would have been like the 70s i think so the idea is pretty old but yeah the there is a big surge in research where they're actually doing it like on mice like since maybe 2009 right right so one takeaway i've had from working on these stories is that we don't really know a whole lot about the brain that's kind of everyone knows that we don't know a lot about the brain because you know we can't figure out how to cure things like depression and uh, anxiety and we are constantly messing with its chemistry and we're constantly trying to figure out how things like schizophrenia work and dementia work and alzheimer's work but uh you know as kaylee's story demonstrates the brain is a highly adaptable organ and it differs between people so i just did a story about uh using neuroscience in uh, court trials and basically, at the moment, we can use uh, functional MRI scans, which measure blood flow to certain parts of the brain, to tell if someone's lying. You can use it to uh, often see if someone has a disorder. In many cases, you can actually tell if someone is uh, a psychopath. But it, none of this stuff is quite ready for you know the none of this is quite ready for use in trials because it needs to be close to 100% accurate and there's always outliers and at the moment when you want to do say a lie detection with an fMRI it's con- it's compared against the results are compared against a database essentially and it's accurate say like 75 or 80% of the time which is better than a polygraph but it's obviously not quite good enough for use in a court trial and it it's it's Neurology certainly seems like something where everything is kind of one step away or we're not quite there yet, um, which is sort of a bummer, but I guess we're we're getting there. Yeah, you mentioned in your story about that, that 
there's a lot of that in science fiction about manipulating the brain in order to make someone tell the truth or tell if someone's lying, like injecting truth serum into their neck or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you see it in Minority Report, which is obviously they use these kind of mutant um, crack babies in Minority (laughs) Report. But the idea of pre-crime and predicting crime has been, you know, an idea that people have wanted to do for a long time. And once you can predict crime or predict whether someone is likely to be violent, it opens a whole nother host of issues such as can you arrest something, someone for something that they haven't done yet, uh, which is obviously the kind of point of Minority Report and I'm sure many other films that I have not seen. A couple of things about Minority Report. <laughs> so first of all, it's not scientific. They don't have a scientific explanation really for what the precogs are doing, right? No, in they're like ma- magical. Yeah, right? they're like psychics. So that's just like a little bit of fantasy thrown into this very sciencey science fiction world. And then they don't even there's no indictment of the precogs like at the end of the film like there's sort of they don't like disprove like what happened was they got tricked. It wasn't that it didn't work. You know, like it it was never shown that somebody could accurately be predicted by the precogs to be committing a crime and then like actually decide at the last minute not to do it. Spoilers. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I actually just rewatched Minority Report a few months ago and it is really good as a film. <laughs> I very much enjoyed it. I saw it in theaters when it first came out and it was the scariest movie I've ever seen in my entire life Same. up to that point. I had nightmares for like weeks based on the precogs specifically when they like go like murder. It's like <laughs> really scary. And there's also a part where one of them just like screams run and like it's very scary. And there's like some eyeball stuff going on in that movie. I was going to say the eyeball stuff yeah. is what got me. But when I just rewatched the movie, I, as you mentioned, you know, there's not a whole lot of um, science in it especially for the pre-crime stuff. But there is some interesting predictions about things like advertise, targeted advertising and advertising being everywhere. And True. certainly not uh, these crazy cars that they have, although they are self-driving, which we are kind of getting into now. But I was watching and I was just, you know, there's all this targeted advertising and personalized uh, like greetings when you walk into a store for Tom Cruise or whatever and that's what we're ha- that's what we have now there's last week a story broke that there is a billboard in Russia that hides from the cops because it uses not facial recognition technology but the same sort of thing to essentially detect a badge and then this bus advertisement changes itself and I forget what they were advertising. It was but. advertising illegal food. Yeah, it was advertising imported Italian meats and cheeses, which you can't import at the current time in Russia. But that ad, I mean, we're we're almost there, but that ad, like, changed way too slowly. Yeah. It was still cool. There was plenty of <laughs> also, time for the police officers to see the ad before it changed. What a bunch of badasses in, importing Italian meats. I know. <laughs> Gosh, that mozzarella. The horror, Yeah. Um, We should talk to Natalie real quick, though. Um, She has many things to say about 
what being on Facebook all the time and Twitter all the time and texting people all the time uh, does to our brains, or at least our psychology, which is perhaps slightly different than what it is physically doing to your brain. But um, it's interesting. She says, you know, when you are expecting a message, your brain like literally changes. You are just so obsessed with getting a Twitter notification or a Facebook notification that you will like keep scrolling or keep putting content out there until someone basically responds. I have and, no idea what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, all all the stuff she says hits home, like really close to home because especially as someone who, you know, works on the internet, it's very difficult to disconnect. And so talking to her was kind of scary for me, but uh, let's get into it. Radio Motherboard is brought to you by Casper. Sleep is a pain in the ass, but you shouldn't have your mattress to blame. Try Casper. It's one perfect mattress made in the USA just for you, with free shipping, free returns, and a whole 100 nights to try it out. Yeah, that's right. You can actually take this thing for 100 test sleeps to decide if you love it. Check it out at casper.com and make sure you use code VICE, that's V-I-C-E, for $50 off any mattress. Uh, I'm here with Natalie Nahai. She is the web psychologist. Thank you very much for joining. My pleasure. Um, yeah, Hi. nice to be here. Yeah. Um, what is a web psychologist? So um, I made up the term web psychology in 2011 and coined it as the empirical study of how our online environments influence our behaviors. And this basically was because there's a huge amount of research being done across very um, different fields of study. So things like cross-cultural psychology, human-computer interaction, neuroesthetics, behavioral economics, um, all of which could give us understanding as to specific reasons why and how we behave the way that we do online. But no one had brought these different disciplines together or brought these insights into a, a main framework that could then help us navigate you know, online behavior and how it gets influenced. And so that's why I came up with the idea of web psychology, to bring these things together under one roof and provide kind of a psychological toolkit for um, engaging people online in a psychologically exciting way. Right. And it's pretty obvious that, you know, the web has changed our behavior. I mean, you don't have to be an expert to, to know that. Why uh, why was there no research into this? Or at least why had no one brought it under, under one roof um, until you did? And, and how exactly have you sort of done that? Very good question. I mean, I think the people who tend to... Um synthesize different disciplines together tend to be by and large practitioners so people who are in the commercial space and typically the research that's been done in terms of behavior especially psychological behavior or um, any kind of cognitive uh, tends to be conducted in the academic sphere now if you look at people who do phds and do specific areas of studies what you'll find is that the approach is um, very deep but it's also very narrow so the academic approach is really one of figuring figuring out what something is in very specific depth. So not joining the dots, but looking much deeper into particular aspects. And I think that's the main reason why um, people haven't really looked at it from a design perspective. That being said, there is a huge branch of psychology that's, that's grown very rapidly in the last few years called cyber psychology, which does look more at the social and individual aspects. Um, and the difference there really between cyber psychology and web psychology was that I was approaching it from a designer developer process. Um, so looking at how we can construct 
experience and certain behaviors through designing environments. So that's kind of a bit of a different approach. What sorts of online behaviors interest you most? Because this is such a broad field. I mean, you could say, you know, teens looking at their Facebook or Instagram is, you know, a way that the web has influenced behavior. But obviously, you can name hundreds of them. So what have you kind of specialized in? Well, well, yeah, classically, up until about the beginning of this year, I've been looking more in the sort of the CRO space. So conversion rate optimization, how to apply web psychology principles to um, engage people to take certain outcomes, which are mutually beneficial, both to the clients and to the to the platform. So say, for instance, it's a shop and you're invested in the shop, you like the brand and you want to buy stuff online. There are certain behavioral principles you can employ to make that process um, and all basically all the touch points to make the process much more persuasive and engaging. So that's classically what I've done. However, some of the points that you've raised, this idea of, you know, the internet and various tools influencing our behaviors in ways that we might not have expected has led me to a point now where I'm starting to look at how we might humanize the web. So what are the unintended consequences of these principles being deployed to what we call users? And what's the consequence of having this distancing language when we're designing platforms for other people? Um, especially when the platforms that we design, if they become adopted as um, standards of best practice, so for instance, um, you know, opt-in defaults, etc. What happens when that becomes best practice and then we all get influenced by the principles that we've um, employed to get certain outcomes? And that's quite complex to say, but yeah. Does that does that make enough sense? Do you need to be a bit more? Uh, it, it does. I, I think concrete. we can get a little bit more uh, concrete. But uh, you mentioned CRO. What sorts mm. of um, things are done to make us buy things online? Like, what are some examples? Okay, so great example. One of my favorites because it's easy and it's effective is the principle of scarcity. So you'll see this on newsletters, on websites where you'll have limited stock or limited time offer, um, where someone says. Um, uh, only this many items in stock, time runs out soon, uh, order now to avoid disappointment. So this fear of missing out. But this fear of missing out also happens in terms of um, social campaigns. So it's not just scarcity of stock and of time, but also scarcity of um, time socially. So you've only got a certain amount of time to appraise yourself of all the different things that are going on in your sphere. Otherwise, you'll miss out and you won't be seen as being someone who's kind of at the center of your social group. So the scarcity principle is a very intriguing um, lever that we can that we can pull and you see people pull quite a lot in terms of manipulating behavior. Right. There, there's been some interesting, I don't know if they're studies or, or news articles or what, um, about what people post on Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, basically they portray their lives as being much more interesting than they actually are. Mm. Um, you know, oh, I'm traveling or, oh, I'm at this restaurant. Um, and, you know, maybe they're there by themselves and they're bored in, in real life. <laughs> um, have you done much research, you know, into that? Like maybe how we not necessarily lie on social media, but uh, kind of present our best selves, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of research that shows that, that we, we seek social validation. This is not something that's new. It's predated the internet, and it's the idea that in order to survive, we need to, to belong to a group, and in order to belong to a group, we need to be um, liked and approved of by our peers. And so this idea of, of seeking this like, which is kind of the founding principle um, upon which Facebook uh, has built its success, the idea that we're validating each other all the time, in this instance with like a binary button, um, it, it makes for a very compelling type of behavior. So the fact that 
like you say, like you could be sitting somewhere having subjectively quite a lonely experience and then wanting to display something a lot more seductive or exciting or engaging to the outside world. We're in the process of curating our online personas to make ourselves more attractive, to feel like we can belong and to have that approval from, from other people. But of course, one of the biggest problems is that when we seek social validation through that sort of means, so through a very disconnected um, impersonal uh, medium, then you actually don't get that same sense of uh, connectedness that you would do pre the internet. So when you're actually with your friends having a shared experience. And that's causing all sorts of issues around feelings of disconnectedness, also these traits that you can get online. So de-individuation, people behaving in ways that they wouldn't if they were with their peers or being seen by others um, physically. So it's, yeah, it can be a big problem. Right. Is this having a, I guess, physical impact on our brains or is it merely like, is there a way of telling whether this is having any sort of like long term uh, impact on, you know, things like happiness and self-fulfillment or is it too mm. early or not enough research or, or, or do we know? It's a very interesting question. Um, I can't speak to um, the neuropsychological aspects of it because I'm not a neurologist, but there is some research to suggest uh, that the structures the structures in the brain, the way that the, the mechanics of the brain don't seem to change. It's just the ways in which we use it. So, for instance, attention um, having been reduced into time packets. But there's an argument, of course, to say that, you know, if we're reducing our attention spans, then that may be... Uh, that may be serving us in terms of the kind of environment that we're now having to operate in. So I'm not entirely sure that I want to comment on that as, as that's not my area of expertise. But what I can say is that we're in the midst of um, my behavioral research and I in, in, of creating this web health survey that looks at how the internet influences our well-being across various factors. So things like our level of attention, um, whether we feel uh, connected to other people, how much utility it brings us, whether it enables us to get a greater sense of self, of well-being. Um, but it's quite early stages, so we hope to publish that fairly shortly. But um, yeah, it's an area which hasn't been researched nearly enough. And I think in terms of the earliest research, there was some fascinating stuff that came out uh, by Kimberly Young in 1998 looking at internet addiction, which is absolutely fascinating. And, and there are certain markers that you can look at to assess whether people are having unhealthy patterns of, of use in terms of their, their internet. Um, right. Yeah. So there I, is some research, but not lots. Right. I know um, throwing the word addiction around, uh, people get mad about that. But mm. um, it almost seems as though everyone in my generation is addicted to like their smartphone, for instance. Um, how how do, can you tell whether someone's actually addicted to it or if it's just, I don't know, I'm on it all the time, but if I left it at home, I'm not going to freak out. Like, mm -hmm. it just seems every, every single person I know is on their phone all the time. So, I mean, is that necessarily a bad behavior? Not bad behavior, but an unhealthy one. I think the, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the key factors, certainly if you look at um, Young's research, are things uh, that then impact your day-to-day -day life. So if your internet use is uh, something that you hide from your family and friends, if you're having to uh, change your, your daily routines and behavior just so that you can fit in more internet use, if you're spending much, much more time than you initially anticipated, um, if you are finding that you end up coming off the web feeling more depressed or more isolated than before. So there are a lot of factors, many of which I'm sure most of us can relate to, many of which I can relate to. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to 
look at it within the context of, well, is this overall something which has become a normalized behavior, which is not reducing people's subjective sense of well-being, or are some of these patterns of behavior actually causing a sense of disconnection and of lower well-being within in certain demographics and so looking at what's healthy and what's not healthy and beginning to assess that from an individual basis is actually really important um, right. i can certainly send you the link for her research because it's fascinating and it can give you the, the the bullet points that you can go through to do a little self-assessment if you like yeah that sounds good cool uh, we can pass that on to listeners as well um in the text of the article but um you you mentioned you know uh, if you're feeling lonely when you leave the web or or something like that is kind of a maybe unhealthy, but when the internet is literally everywhere and when it's become such a normalized thing, um, you know, obviously there's always your outliers, but uh, when your friends and family are also on the internet all the time and it's just such a normal part of our lives, does mm. that change what fundamentally what addiction is? That's an excellent question. Um, well, it depends. So fundamentally if you're looking at it from an extreme perspective addiction is anything that that has a harmful long-term effect on you on your well-being um but then obviously the harmful effect on your well-being is dictated by what the norms are around what's harmful and what's not so there is some scope for kind of moving further towards addictive patterns of behavior before it becomes critical and i think that what is say for instance if you've got um, a researcher from the 1990s to transplant themselves into today's world, looking at everyone around bus stops, around mealtimes, whatever, just staring down at their phones, then they would absolutely say that there's, there's a problem, an addiction problem going on. But of course, because the context has changed so much and we're observing ourselves within this new context, the kind of the goalposts do move. So it's, it's quite a tricky thing to look at. And as you say, it's a very, very loaded term. So we have to be quite careful when we're investigating it. Right, right. Um, you mentioned attention span and... Um, it seems like, I don't know, I keep just coming back to smartphones because they've kind of fundamentally changed um, when you're on the internet, I guess. But, mm. you know, now you have, I have a notification coming in from Instagram. I have one from Periscope. I have a Facebook, you know, I have a tweet. <laughs> um, has there been much research into, um, you know, ha have our attention spans decreased and um, are, are there going to be ramifications from that? Yeah, I mean, there's some really, really, really interesting research that came out recently, which is looking at um, interruption and what interruption through, for instance, some of those notifications that you just outlined, what these interruptions do to our attention and our ability to focus and to perform. And what the research found was that every time we get interrupted, either through a new notification or through an email or whatever it might be, it takes 22 minutes to regain the same level of focus in the task that we are engaged in um, to the level before we were interrupted. So if you're thinking about downtime and the time it takes you to regain that level of focus and performance, that's a huge amount that we're losing. Now, another problem is, of course, that when you're looking at things like notifications or the infinite scroll, the reason it's so um, seductive, the reason that we respond to it so strongly is because it sets off what we call dopamine loops uh, in the brain. So dopamine is one of the main reward chemicals in the brain. And you get a shot of it every time something pleasurable happens. So whether, you know, it's great food or you're seeing your favorite band or you're having great sex or you receive a notification that's really positive. And what we found is that... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You end up with the most persuasive loops happening when you have what's called a variable ratio of reinforcement or a variable schedule of rewards. And all that means is you log into, let's say, Twitter, you have a look down your stream, and you don't know when you're going to get a really good tweet, how, how exciting it's going to be, so how big the reward is going to be. And so you keep going until you get that hit. And it's the same in emails, it's the same in Facebook. So if you don't know how big the reward's going to be or when you're going to get it, you're going to keep engaging in that behavior and keep interrupting yourself until you get that spike. Now, the irony is that the spike is so small that you want to need, to, well, you need to get another fix. So you, you want to engage in that behavior again and again. And that's, that's very problematic because in the absence of notifications, even if you switch all your notifications off, we are likely to self-interrupt. So to go and seek out those same stimulations. Um, anyway, so it's kind of, it's created this weird norm of just wanting to be constantly stimulated and interrupting our performance and our focus in a way that just isn't helping us, really. Mm -hmm. That's highly fascinating. And I mean, it's kind of hitting close to home because I do that all the time. And I'm sure lots of our (laughs) listeners do as well. Um, Has there been any sort of research into how to break that cycle? Or is it pretty obvious you just take like a vacation (laughs) or something? (laughs) Well, you, you just have to, I think the first thing really is to decide how you want to um, how you want to engage in the world. So essentially it's saying, okay, well, if you have, say for instance, um, two hours at the beginning of the day when you know that you're highly productive, create a schedule where you know that you're not going to be interrupted, where you have those two hours on a timer, and then you put all your notifications, for instance, on the, the final page of your apps on your phone, you set your phone to do not disturb, you make sure that your um, laptop or whatever desktop you're using is not connected to the internet, or if it is, the notifications are switched off. So it's basically about getting rid of the external triggers that trigger those behaviors um, and deciding upfront what's the explicit goal that you have in mind, what do you want to achieve, and for how long will you achieve it. And I think that kind of hack, where you're just deciding what it is that you need and then how you're going to get there and removing external triggers can be incredibly persuasive, um, sorry, not persuasive, incredibly effective at reducing those behaviors because they're actually very difficult to, um, to use willpower to stop as much much, much better to kind of just create a scenario in which you're not being interrupted. Right. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's like, it's, it sounds extreme, but that's kind of what you have to do is make your phone less, do less of what it you know normally does. Um, yeah. I think it's not extreme, right? Like we didn't opt in to having these notifications. It just, we were given these particular configurations. We just adapted to them. So actually it's not extreme. It's basically saying, well, given what we know about the way that tech is influencing our behaviors and deciding whether that's helping us personally or not, then it's about consciously choosing how we're going to use technology so it doesn't use us, essentially. And that's crucial. We should all be having that, that conversation with ourselves. Right, right. Um, yeah, we use technology all the time. Um, we've kind of focused, I guess, on maybe some of the problems with technology. But obviously, things like social media and our cell phones have kind of made us more connected it, maybe mm-hmm. maybe the relationships aren't as meaningful i have no idea but uh, w- what are some of the um i guess obviously good benefits of, of the web psychologically 
Well, I think one of the one of the most exciting benefits is the fact that we get to seek out people beyond our physical geographical location who can share similar outlooks and values to ourselves. And psychological research all the way back has shown that when we feel, again, that, that idea of belongingness and social validation, when we feel accepted for who we are and we get that unconditional positive regard from others, from our peers, then we tend to thrive. And I think that's the most extraordinary gift that the internet has given us, is the ability to seek out people who can see us for who we are, with whom we can have that shared sense of connection, and then have a sense of the possibility of personal growth um, in a way that's that, that's not been available to us in the past. And I think that's extraordinary. The other aspect that I think is amazing is, and you see this a lot with um, younger people. So, um, for instance, an example of a kid whose grandmother was dying of cancer and he took to the internet to find resources to approach cancer in a way that would create a solution that was a lot cheaper and he's since been funded by, I think it was, I think it might have been MIT. So the, the availability of information um, to enable people to use their curiosity to educate themselves in ways that were previously unimaginable. I think those two components for me are what's what's most exciting about right. the internet. Is there a flip side of the coin to that for first uh, benefit you mentioned where, you know, you can seek out people who share your views or, mm. you know, meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet? Um, we, we did an episode on online trolling a few <laughs> weeks ago mm. and um, kind of expanded out into this, um, I guess, you know, the, the uh, misogyny and racism you see on some like Reddits and on Twitter um, at times. And it seems like, you know, you could potentially be, you know, a, a teenager in a small town and hold some racist uh, feelings. And let's say you express them in real life and they would maybe get, you know, you'd get stomped out pretty quickly because mm. that wouldn't fly. Um, but then, you know, you can go to a, you know, white power subreddit or something like that and mm. find other people who uh, share those views. Um, ha has there been a lot of research into, you know, this? I mean, it even happens with, say, something like terrorism or ISIS, where you can radicalize yourself online, you can find people who share your views, and then, um, you know, you can meet up that way, I guess. Has, has there been mm. a lot of research into that that effect? Um, well, in terms of in terms of research and suggest generally, yes, there's several points to make that. So the first the first point is around homophily, the idea that we we flock towards people that are similar to us, and the um, the echo chamber effect that that can create, and how it can reinforce this existing beliefs that we might have. Now that throughout history has has tended to not result in positive outcomes because it creates greater between group. Um, conflict, just because you're you're basically hunkering down with a tribe who holds very strong beliefs, and there's that kind of fear of um, and animosity towards other groups that don't share those values. So that is an issue that's that's been present for a long time. In terms of looking at, um, I guess what we're looking at is kind of things like the dark net or sub sub threads where people then seek out um, fringe groups that are perhaps not approved of by the mainstream. And this goes for the good and for the bad. Um, an author who's done a lot of really interesting research around this is Jamie Barlin. He wrote a book called The Darknet, which looks at taboos and about um, sort of extreme political groups and also things like pedophilia and pedophilic rings uh, and people who you know, essentially use the darknet to find taboo organizations with whom they have an affiliation. Um, that's a good place that I would start in terms of looking at how these things express themselves online. But I think in terms of general well-being and crime rates, etc., there's always going to be 
an aspect of that that gets reflected online because the internet is a mirror of our, of our society. And so I think rather than stomp it out or try to remove these kinds of groups, what we need to do is kind of shed the light as to how and why these behaviours and these kind of attitudes are not beneficial to wider society and try to provide a context and an offline situation in which people can foster this sense of community and of connectedness with people beyond their immediate tribes and spheres. Do you ever get the sense that we're doing like a massive experiment at, <laughs> at the moment? Um, you know, with this, you know, everyone has a smartphone, everyone's connected all the time. Mm. There's obviously it's not like a drug where there was like a clinical trial and then, you know, they're like, okay, now smartphones are safe. Um, do you ever get the sense that, you know, maybe we will find out in 10, 15 years, you know, people who grew up connected all the time are fundamentally different than, you know, people who grew up 30, 40 years ago? Uh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think we're always, I think all of life is an experiment, first of all, but I think, I think the question fundamentally different, we need to ask what, what we mean by that. So do you mean, you know, they're going to develop um, different behaviours of interacting with the world? Well, yes, I think absolutely. The difference between people who grew up with the internet being plugged in versus people who didn't, I think, is quite marked in the sense of how we understand um, pre and post internet in terms of, you know, the, the world and the relationships we had, etc. So I think that there is definitely going to be a shift in mindset, and we're starting to see this with, with younger generations. In terms of our basic drivers, so the need to connect, the need for touch, the need for um, deep emotional experience, I don't think that's going to change fundamentally. What I am curious to find out is to see how, how being connected all the time and having um, certain, having the internet mediate a lot of our communication, our relationships, how that's going to either enable or, or inhibit a formation of deeper relationships within within the kind of the generation that's coming out that hasn't yet had the chance to think consciously about how to interact with their tech. Does does that make sense? Is that too? No, no it, it does make sense. It does. <laughs> okay. um, have you done much research in, or do you have any um, general thoughts on? Um, how emerging technologies like, um, say, virtual reality or even even some like sex ones such as like teledildonics where you can, oh, yeah. you know, have like telepresence sex, uh, how those might affect, uh, you know, our psychology. Obviously, those are two different, very different things, but, um, you know, they, they are kind of just coming out now and they will affect how we interact with the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a very specific interest in teledildonics and sex tech just because it's it's probably one of the most taboo areas that um, people are only just starting to talk about. I think I think what we're going to find and what we're already starting to find with, generally speaking, with um, the internet facilitating different types and styles of relationships. So, for instance, hookup apps, dating apps, um, you know, Skype, sex, etc. That with with this um, with the adoption of more. So sophisticated sex tech and teledildonics and the rest of it, it's going to make us really shift our perspective of what fidelity might be and what um, sexual monogamy might be and, and, and looking at gender and sexuality in a much more fluid way, which is a lot more representative of you know, what we are naturally. Gender and sexuality has, has never been binary. Um, and so I think it will open up the possibility for having a deeper understanding as to what our individual sexuality and gender and identity looks like. And I think from that perspective, it could, psychologically speaking, be um, extraordinarily empowering. However, there's also, um, I mean, there's always a caution side to this, which is to say, 
that if you are able to sink into a really deep and intimate and exciting uh, romantic relationship with someone, that that's going to provide a very different quality of experience than the more mechanical, perfunctory, exhilarating, visceral sense that you might get through teledildonics. Um, but generally, I'm actually very excited because it, it makes us stretch our sense of self and what's possible and makes us question the underpinning beliefs that we have around sex and intimacy and relationship. And I think that can only be a good thing. Right, right. And I guess we've already seen this kind of emerge a bit. Um, obviously, you know, porn has been around forever, but mm. with the web, it's everywhere. And I, I would say, you know, I, I'm pretty young. I'm 27. So I, I don't know what it was like 30, 40 years ago. But um, I would I would suspect that few people think that, you know, watching porn is cheating, for instance, whereas maybe, you know, in the 50s, it was probably a little more taboo. So, yeah. I mean, do you think uh, these, you know, having like teledildonic sex with someone will maybe be seen as cheating at first and then it'll become normalized or something? Um, is that is that a totally like crazy um, <laughs> comparison or... No, not at all. I mean, I think I think that's a very um, observant comparison. I mean, if you look at how we we tend to kind of have to fit, um, we've always had to fit new technology into old views of the world. So whether that was, um, you know, even the fire, for instance, way back in the day, or whether that was, you know, the humble letter or the wireless or you know, TVs or whatever, people have always lamented and been distrustful of new technology and how it impacts. Uh, society and individuals and well-being and I think this is no different I do think however that because um there's several points here really because sex tech is not anything new the Victorians had sex tech um and you can find all sorts of primitive um <laughs> well I'm going to be explicit primitive dildos all the way back from Egyptian times that this is not anything new and what we're finding is that because it's because it's quite a different market to you know, to online porn. So sex tech industry is very much a mature market for female customers. I'm interested to see how that demand and that kind of, I don't know, basis for viewing the world is going to shape the way in which it gets adopted. Because there's so much research that's come out in recent years. You know, you look at Sex at Dawn, the book that was um, came out in 2010, you've got uh, The End of Men, you've got uh, Naomi Wolf's work, Vagina. You've got Daniel Bergner's work, um, What Do Women Want? All of these different books looking at how ostensibly females are less suited to monogamy than males and the women are the ones driving the sex tech industry. I think it's going to be a very interesting few years to see how it gets adopted. And because taboos are becoming so broken, you know, with hookup apps, you, you're kind of reducing the shame of, historically, of women seeking um, sex and having that level of sexual agency. I think that actually it will be adopted much more swiftly than perhaps other technologies in the past, but that remains to be seen. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned adoption and access a, a couple times and I was wondering, um, I, I would suspect that teledildonics will be not that cheap at first and mm. maybe something, you know, only rich people can afford. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure, but um, do you, it, it seems as though that may have the uh, potential to change how we have sex. And if only if it's only changing for rich people at first, do you think we could have some sort of like stratus, stratified idea of, you know, sexuality and of what's normal and everything that kind of comes along with that? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Um, I think yes and no. I think yes, in the sense that 
certainly in the UK where I live, there is a bit of a class divide in terms of sexual practice where you see younger women getting pregnant um, early, obviously, versus richer richer women getting pregnant at a later date. So there is already a sexual divide there in terms of what's seen as, as normal and not. I think in terms of the affordability and therefore access of sex tech, because tech is such a rapid... Um, a rapidly growing um, industry, I think that it will become very affordable very quickly. And so I wonder, um, I wonder if we'll see any of those effects uh, have any sort of lasting impact, just because I think you're going to get affordable sex tech very, very swiftly. Right. So um, that's my own sort of suspicion around that. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I, I think you're right. I think that maybe at first there, there could be an effect like that. And I, I think, as you mentioned, we are seeing it... Um, I would suspect that the average Tinder user, for instance, is probably uh, pretty well off um, mm. just because of, you know, smartphone access and uh, people, everyone has a smartphone now, but mm. um, I, I would suspect that, you know, in the early days of online dating, probably it was primarily rich people doing it, but um, that's just a, a guess on my part, but mm. obviously it's becoming much more um, widespread very quickly. I mean, I, I would think that, you know, five or 10 years is not really that long in terms of the grand scheme of things. Mm. I mean, I think there's another interesting point to look at here also, which is, you know, we're kind of talking about sex tech disrupting normative views of sexuality and fidelity and monogamy and the rest of it. But actually, there are so many, um, there are many cultures. So for instance, especially in developing countries where um, fidelity and monogamy has a very different meaning to what it does in the West. And so I think when we're talking about disruption and how it's going to change our approach to sexuality, you also have to be um, careful as to the cultural lens that you're looking through to say, okay, well, what's the cultural norm um, and how is this technology likely to influence that? Because not everyone has the same outlook that, that you know, the UK or the US or, or Europe might, might have. Right, right. Yeah, that goes for everything we talked about, I think. Um, mm. I'm, Motherboard is, is very interested in uh, the digital divide and in emerging economies and, you know, the, the kind of overlooked um, parts of the world, at least, you know, from the West, the West kind of overlooks them. But, mm. uh, you know, at the same time, I don't have a, a great lens into some of these cultures. Um, mm. So it's, it's a highly interesting area um, that, mm. I, I, you know, probably underlooked area, I would suspect. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to start looking at it more or hearing about it more, certainly with, um, especially with Facebook's launch of, you know, internet.org and, and all of that and all the problems that walled gardens um, bring with them in terms of giving people access to what they believe to be the internet. And actually, it's just a very um, structured, commercialized platform that, that is a million miles away in some respects to the original intention behind right. the, the open architecture framework of, of the original web. So, yeah, I, yeah. Right. That's something we've been writing a lot about. It, you know, Internet.org is Facebook's plan to basically connect everyone um, who has a smartphone or even uh, some some dumb phones, I guess. Um, mm. And yeah, basically, sorry, this is for for the listeners if they're if they're not familiar with it. But um, basically, he's offering free service, but it's free service to Facebook and a few other you know yeah. government approved uh, sites, which is obviously problematic. Yeah. Anyways, um, I, 
as we mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, it's such a wide topic. And, you know, we started talking about Facebook and ended on teledildonics and kind of looped <laughs> back around. So uh, highly, highly interesting area of study. And it obviously affects, you know, everything we do these days. Um, but thank you so much for coming on, Natalie. It's very, very interesting. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in deciding what part of that interview we wanted to focus on for our little outro here, Adrienne started checking her phone and glancing all around the room. And I think we should talk about our attention spans. <laughs> I have a lot of responsibilities. So do we all. So do we all. Is that English? It is English. And that's true. So do we all. No, I'm just making excuses. I, I, I don't know attention spans i feel like my attention really started to degrade when mozilla introduced tabbed browsing in firefox oh yeah that was that was uh when i started to notice a real difference now it's like um i started reading books on the kindle again and i can focus for that so maybe it's not all i feel like i have a good attention span but i think that's just compared to my peers and it's not great, like, but I am able to focus and write an article from time to time without checking our chat room, like, every two seconds and clicking through Reddit constantly. Um, but one thing that I do all the time that is kind of pops up on Facebook or Reddit from time to time is I will be on Reddit kind of bored and I'll be scrolling down it and then I'm like, oh, I wonder what's on Reddit. And I go up to the top and I'd like type in Reddit. I'm like, oh, I'm already literally on that page. And I do it on Facebook too. I'm like, oh, what is anything happening on Facebook? And I like, I'm already on Facebook and I just retype in or I open up a new tab and I type Facebook again. And yeah, then I'll have like 16 tabs open of Facebook. I definitely don't do that, but I do, I am a bad for having my phone out while I'm watching like a movie or a TV show at home. Uh, my boyfriend gives me shit about that a lot. But if it's a really interesting film or, or TV show, then I don't do that. So I think that these it's shows really, just have to work harder yeah, to keep my attention. That's a TV good thing. We're making so better content that's going to hold our attentions longer. That sounds like a joke, but I think there's honestly something to that. Because if something is really good and demands your attention, then you will stop what you're doing and do it. Whereas so much of what we we as human beings create right now is kind of disposable. It's designed to be consumed in two seconds and thrown away. You know, like a cat video or a GIF or like a clickbait headline. I don't know, just a list or or whatever and I think you know you still see these articles from time to time that are like must read articles or you still have I guess Game of Thrones is maybe an example right now Breaking Bad was one a couple of years ago of TV shows that people stop and watch and maybe they tweet during it but also they are like fully invested in what's going on and you don't really get that kind of uh attention for something like maybe the bachelor do people still watch that i mean you don't get it with these things that are kind of designed to be like background noise sort of right yeah i would well game of thrones was what i was thinking of when i was trying to think of something where i put my phone away and i i totally put my phone away and like physically remove it so i'm not even tempted because i want to focus but i don't get that little tingle 
that you sometimes get to just like check Twitter really quickly or Facebook or and the the worst part is there's never anything on Facebook or Twitter that I needed to see. <laughs> but if you're really bored, it's just something to do. I would just say let's be careful of saying that just because something doesn't consume your attention that it's not high quality and also I find myself unable to get through things that are obviously high quality for example I and and yeah for me at least I have a really hard time not focusing on tv and movies maybe because I didn't get like consume a lot of them when I was growing up we didn't have a tv in the house because my parents are hippies (laughs) but um if there's a tv on in the room I can't not look at what's going on even if it's so dumb so I don't know for our own sake as we make things every day and see how many people look at them let's not say strictly if it's good you're gonna pay attention I I didn't mean it like that I meant you know we certainly create content from time to time that is a more of a candy sort of situation than a vegetables sort of situation um which can be consumed quickly and is hopefully of high quality as well but um maybe you look at it and then you're not thinking about it like it doesn't consume your dreams which sometimes you watch a tv show and then you dream about it because it's so either so good or affecting or scary or um emotionally uh whatever emotional stimulating (laughs) stimulating is the word that i was looking for yes thank you what was the last tv show you dreamed about jason black mirror oh i dreamed a lot about black mirror (laughs) but i've watched shows since then i I watch um i watch an episode of the simpsons every single night before i go to bed basically and by watch i mean i turn the screen off and i just put the sound on because their voices put me to sleep which is potentially probably bad for sleeping like quality but i i never dream about the simpsons it's just strictly noise it's like white noise to me and i think <laughs> i think that's no that's not that crazy I've heard other people. no <laughs> it's like sweet that that's like so comforting to you that that's what you fall asleep to <laughs> i feel like that's a scene from a dystopian movie the young child going to sleep to the People listen, Simpsons. people listen to music as no, they fall asleep. No, a lot asleep. of people, a lot of people like watch TV or whatever as they fall asleep. My boyfriend watches Friends and before Friends, Frasier. Sometimes I mix it up from The Simpsons and I will put on Friends or Seinfeld or some other thing I've seen 80 million times. And <laughs> another, like going back to attention, there's a lot of people who can't listen to music and do something else at the same time. But I listen to music all day while I write, and I don't even realize what I'm listening to because it's strictly there to drown out whatever else is going on. This reminds me of another story we did this week, which was about Alzheimer's and whether learning to code can delay the onset of Alzheimer's because studies have shown that being bilingual delays the onset of Alzheimer's. And the reason for this is because inhibition plays an important part in Alzheimer's. Um, Somehow losing the ability to inhibit some signals going into your brain and just focus on others is connected to the degeneration that that comes before Alzheimer's. So it's interesting that you say that. It sounds like you're very good at inhibition because your brain is inhibiting 
the signals from the music and you're just focusing on another thing. So are you suggesting, are you guaranteeing I won't get I'm Alzheimer's? Guaranteeing that personally. That's good. That's Wait, good do know. you listen to music with lyrics though? Yeah. Because I can listen to music, but if, it, if there's lyrics, it immediately draws my attention. Yeah. And I think that that's because I'm a writer and I'm focused on words and language and it's right. like someone singing to me yeah but you don't actually know what the words to anything are anyways it's i like, do though yeah but you'll get them <laughs> slightly wrong there's songs i've heard you know my whole life that i still like don't know what the exact lyrics are it's just like some sounds that someone's voice is making yeah i'm with you kaylee <laughs> i listen to um music that doesn't have words like dubstep like bach <laughs> yeah i was thinking like Chopin. no i listen to like electronic <laughs> music like Ratatat. Like Ratatat would be a good one. Or Fortet would be a good one. Neither of those are dubstep. Neither of those are dubstep, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't actually know specific examples. There used to be this website called console.fm. This is an advertisement for a thing that does not exist anymore, but I loved <laughs> it so much. And it will stream, it used to stream the top 100 tracks from any genre on SoundCloud at the moment by listens. And so you just put on like dubstep or put on like mashups or put on down tempo or glitch hop or whatever. And Does it have nineties radio hits? Work. Does it I have early two thousands emo pop punk? Remember, Wait, you don't know I the really... words to early nineties radio hits. Yeah, you do. I know all the words, but you know I know them so well that they feel like they're coming from me. Yeah. I know for a fact <laughs> how many songs you know. <laughs> And that. so, no, I think, I think, no, I think that a good wrap up here is the fact that everyone's brain is so very different. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's been so hard to unlock the mysteries of the brain, if you will. Um, it's very, they all work completely different. And that's even before you start getting into various disorders that we know very little about and that we have been unable to cure thus far. So... I think that Pixar movie Inside Out will explain all of this to us. That's absolutely true. And why did we not write about Inside Out this week? I mentioned it in the very early intro week post, but you're right. We should have done more. Okay. Next week, Inside Out. Inside Out reviewed (laughs) in depth. Just kidding. Next week, I'm talking to Aziz Ansari about similar things. Yeah, that's good. I'm very excited. You should listen. We'll have celebrity power. Anyways, thank you for listening, as always. Thank you, I'm Adrian. Thanks, I'm Kaylee. And I am Jason. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.